not a big fan of giving advice in general, and when asked, I will usually overly contextualize what I'm saying in order to keep from coming across like, my truth is the truth. But there's a piece of advice I give to writers whenever I can because I need the reminder myself. So in actuality, when I speak to them, I'm speaking to me. The advice is to not get so caught up in the writing and all that writing entails that you forget to live life. I say living life outside of the writing shouldn't be a writing break, it should simply be part of what we do. Writing has been a trap for me at times where everything was research, obsessing, talking, and sitting at the computer. For a period of time I was working full time at a theater, so even work hours were spent in it. I don't remember who originally gave me this advice when I first started out writing, but it has proven to be incredibly important. It's something I think about often, and if the goddamn pandemic has taught me anything, it's that I have a desperate need to be outside myself, to connect with others, see things, breathe new air, move my body, find new textures, hear and see things for what they are. I am often so concerned about whether or not I am being seen, I forget I have eyes too. I can be curmudgeonly and isolating when left to my own devices, so I give this advice in order to hear it myself as often as possible. Live life. Don't fall prey to the mythologies of writers who hold up in a hovel and did nothing but write. I say live life for its own sake and not to refill the writing reservoir, not to collect what you experience. Live life because, just because. Put no judgment or qualifier on it. Just live. Be part of the world. Back in that time I had a theater day job, I was spending all of my non-work hours writing. I felt incredibly removed from the world. I would take a periodic trip here and there. I'd walk around the neighborhood, talk to friends. But the walks were loops around the block, starting and ending at my computer. The conversations looped the same way from writing back to writing. I couldn't put words to it at the time, but I started to feel a yearning to work closer to the community. I felt I was experiencing life like a tourist rather than a participant. When I was in my early 20s, I had a choice between two jobs. One paid well but was corporate. The other was a low-paying social work job with the homeless. I was scared to death of poverty, so I chose the corporate life. That choice set me on a trajectory for many years and I have only just recently found myself back to where I started, working for a community-based nonprofit. And I feel for the first time in my life a sort of balance I have always wanted. I am writing. I am living. I am giving to and taking from the world and it feels good. I feel good. I even, at times, feel happy, if you can believe that. None of what I'm saying is a judgment on what anybody does with their time. Living life, giving and taking from the world, it all means whatever it means for you. It took me years to identify it for myself and start taking my own advice. And if you ask me, I'll tell you how meaningful it's been for me to find a way to be part of the world and not just an observer of it. I'll tell you not to forget to live life, but it's up to you to figure out what that means.
Hello, friends. Welcome to the Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. This month on the Subtext, I share with you a conversation with Dipika Gua. This was one of the best conversations I've ever had. I probably say some version of that for every episode we release, but honestly, this felt so much less like an interview and more like a conversation, and that is when I feel the most comfortable. And it's tough for me to do over Zoom, which is a big reason why I prefer to do these in person, but every once in a while, that distance feels shortened and the Zoom barrier seems to disappear, and I feel like we're right there in the same room. If you're new to the subtext, please subscribe through whatever podcast platform is easiest for you. iPhones have one built right in. Find us and subscribe there. If you're on social media, please share. That helps us build an audience, but it also makes me feel good, you know, for a moment. (laughs) Tag us at the subtext podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I don't want to give the impression that I'm a super downer person. I'm really not. If you say something nice about us on social media, you'll probably make my day, and that day will probably last an entire week. It says here in my script to remind people to rate and review the show as well, but I'll skip that part because I say it all the time. All right, let's get on with the show. Dipika Gua was born in Calcutta and raised in India, Russia, and the United Kingdom. We talk a good deal about this whirlwind of a time in her life. Dipika received her BA in English Literature from University College London, was a Frank Knox Fellow at Harvard University, and received her MFA in Playwriting at the Yale School of Drama under Paula Vogel. Her work has been developed and produced by theaters all over the country. For television, Dipika has written on shows like American Gods, Sneaky Pete, Black Monday, and is currently writing for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It doesn't say so in her official bio, but... I'll add that she's incredibly smart, charming, and talented. She should probably add that to her official bio. I know you'll love this conversation with her. This was recorded over Zoom on June 17th, 2022. I mean, I have to tell you what a giant fan I am of this show that you have and of you. And I just think it's such a service that you're doing uh, for playwrights by having these conversations. It's such an act of generosity, Brian. And in a in a in a sort of world, it's not even a profession. I don't think where where there's so much scarcity, and we often feel like we're pitted against each other. I feel like what you're doing dissolves that. Uh, as another playwright, as a as a fan of the show, I just have a lot of admiration for your courage and talking about your story and then engaging with your peers wherever they are in, in their journey. So thank you. I appreciate that so much. And I think this is the first time where somebody's almost brought me to tears in like the first minute of, <laughs> of recording. Usually it happens like 40 minutes in. <laughs> and I start to feel the feels. Oh, why waste time? <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate that. And uh, it's so hard for us to talk about failure in a profession that is nearly all failure all the time. Yeah. I think sort of the elephant in the room. And I think um I think what you're doing is you're creating you're creating a space that doesn't exist for us. And um it's a really brave and beautiful thing. So thank you. 
Yeah, thank, I mean, some I appreciate I appreciate what you said, and, and some of it comes from a recognition that it, this can be helpful to other folks out there, and some of it is self preservation. You know, mm. like if I say it, it helps me heal. You know, mm. it helps me move on. Whatever it is I need in that moment, like mm -hmm. I, I am the type that needs to um, get it out so mm. I can, you know get on with my life because I've really tried to, and I think uh, we collectively play uh, as playwrights need um, to some degree have the ability to compartmentalize things. Cause if we do get caught, like you said, it is a, an industry of scarcity. And if we do get caught in our, in our down moments, then yeah. it's you know, it's a dangerous place to live in. Yeah, you give voice to like the worst, the worst voices in your head. And then that's, yeah, that's a bad, that's a bad place to be. And I, and I, I think that this podcast is such a, a remedy and that we're reminded that there are patterns in, in the field. And, you know, um, I heard Todd London once describe playwriting as the wilderness, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> being in the wilderness. And I think it's, um, great to just be reminded that we're in it together yeah it, it's the and i i have said this at some point um in the in the pot and i i've done so many of these now i can't really pinpoint when i say certain things but i have expressed the 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 sort of central reasoning for me getting into this is the togetherness of it like uh i i actually sort of in my mind created uh um, I went back to through my history to realize like what why am I here in this and mm. and it goes back to when I was younger and I was I was playing sports and I wasn't good at sports but the reason I did it was because it was a togetherness thing it was like I was on a team and I always wanted to be on a team and mm. so that's what gets me caught in like the 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 sad parts because when we write plays we're it's a solo act for the most yeah. part yeah and it's like the excitement to get with the people right to yes. get around a table to get on the team yeah um to get out of your silo and um that's what i'm constantly like excited about like that's what i write for i'm much more interested in the the communal part of what we make than i am the solo part or even you know i love the sharing at the end when people come in and we invite people in and they experience what we write but it's the in-between part that i just love so much yeah i i really relate to that and it goes back to you saying you kind of hoped that i would cancel um <laughs> that we wouldn't have to do this but it's the like shy contending with the shy parts of who we are as playwrights and with that intense desire to just play <laughs> yeah yeah i do you consider yourself shy Yes, incredibly. I, I don't think I completely understand what shy is. Mm. Um, as I grow older, uh, I thought for a while it was to do with ego. It's sort of shy as uh, you secretly think you're better than everyone else. So if you're, it's a, it's a way of marking your separateness. Um, I've since become a bit more generous about what that mm. <laughs> feels like it's, it's context dependent what shy is, but I think it could be that for internal reasons or external reasons, you are um, uh, quiet. Um, 
And that quiet, I think, can be deeply empowering because it means you've just been a storehouse for a really long time of other people's voices mm-hmm. and uh, spying, mm-hmm. <laughs> and eavesdropping, and 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 kind of that's sort of where your pattern detection, detective skills come from because you're observing the landscape. It's sort of that time for observation. So there are some like wonderful aspects to whatever shy is or whatever it enables, but it also is that thing where you um, are really afraid to be seen. As much as you want to be seen, you're also like, it's devastating and you sort of, um, the blood drains from your body and you kind of black out. whatever that is mm-hmm. <laughs> to be witnessed. Um, and it's that space that we, that's why we love actors because they hold that for us. That like um, the acceptance and the indulgence in visibility. Yeah, that's really true. I, I, I used to consider myself shy. I now come to realize I am, I am introverted, but I'm not shy. Why? What do you think that difference is? Well, the difference is I'm not, I'm not afraid to speak. Mm. I, 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 I get anxiety in groups larger than like four or five. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really am at my best when it's a situation like this, where it's one-on-one or there are just like a few people around a table talking, but in, but in a large group or navigating a party of strangers, that's where I, I get lost and I get anxiety. Um, but you know, if I was at a table of four total strangers, I'm mm. not shy. Like I'm not afraid to speak and tell my story and mm. reveal truths. Like none of that worries me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is about the larger groups, but I am kind of classic introvert in the sense that. Uh, I can't handle chit chat, small talk, <laughs> small talk. Like my conversations need to be real. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise I like, I can't, I can't be there. I don't want to be there. I lose attention and focus and I need to find the exit. That makes sense. I think, um, I think maybe even more so now that sort of, it does feel like the apocalypse is nigh. uh, <laughs> We are, maybe we've run out of time to small talk. Mm. Yeah. And it's kind of, that's kind of nice. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it can be intense. You know? <laughs> because when you, when you encounter somebody who is maybe <laughs> a little bit more shy or just more guarded, maybe not shy, but just guarded, and yeah. suddenly they encounter somebody like me that is perfectly willing to just go and talk and talk yeah. real things right away that you know that can be that can be hard yeah you would be fine it's possibly country dependent you'll be Mm. fine in russia (laughs) (laughs) you're fine in bits of europe Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh in england you would be fine after three pints right yeah right (laughs) yeah there's that guarded So I know you spent time in in these countries, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Where did where do you where do you feel like you grew up? Like where did like your growing up 
period take place or what is there a place where it really happened um yes someone did raise me uh my my parents were responsible um and i was i was so i was born in india in calcutta uh in 1982 and we left after two and a half years so i left when we we left for the uk and then we lived in a place called croydon um, which is famed for where the home office is. And that's all it was famous for. And maybe, maybe still, <laughs> um, uh, forgive me Croydon, if there is more to you now. <laughs> and then we left in a weird reverse immigration when I was six and a half back to India. And do you I have a memory of that time period? Like that, that age two to six. I do the impressionistic. They're sort of moments, mostly, um, mostly terror, because I didn't speak the language, and I remember that. I remember the abject fear mm. uh, of not being understood, not being able to follow what was happening, and um, I remember learning how to read in English. One of my earliest memories that what felt like scribbles suddenly became words. I have mm. a distinct memory of that. Um, and then it, it was an incredibly intense, uh, pretty racist time and um, in the UK. And I think I didn't know that, obviously. I didn't know what that energy was coming towards us as a family, but it was definitely present. And I think I, I, I do still, there's like a sense memory of feeling frightened, even when we walk down the street or we would go to the, I have memories of us going to the library. Um, and um, I was bullied. And uh, I, I remember my mm, mm, you know, that whole time, like my, my parents were so new to the country. I think like a lot of immigrant kids, like they had, they didn't quite know how to take up space either. And so I felt quite defenseless. Um, and I have language for all of this now, but you know, mm -hmm. in my, my kind of memory, it's just sort of a lot of like, I have a lot of emotional associations with, and it was very gray and rainy. <laughs> yeah. Well, were there other, were there other Indian families around? You know, we didn't we didn't know very many there. I think um, my parents just sort of went as they often did suitcases. Um, so we had a little bit of family, but they weren't they weren't that close by. They were in the north. Mm. So what what uh, motivated the move back to India? I will never know. I think I don't I don't quite I still don't quite know. I know my mum was massively homesick. Yeah. And um, she will say, and I uh, that she 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 said she's always said she wanted to give us. Uh, my sister wasn't born then, but she wanted to give us a long childhood, and she said I didn't think you would you could have a long childhood in the UK, and that was in fact correct. I had the mm. longest childhood of in India of reading and riding my bike around. <laughs> for many many years and um yes yeah, so so that's why ostensibly that's why 
there may have been other factors that I, I still don't know. Right. Right. So then, so I know you, you ended up moving to other countries, uh, you know, how long, how long were you in India the second time? Uh, the second time we were there for a decade uh, in two, two places in the South, Kerala and Tamil Nadu and places that, that we're not from I'm Bengali, which is um, in the uh, East of India. And um, I don't know how much you know about India, but it's, we don't understand each other at all. Cause there's literally there's 26 languages. Mm. So we were kind of foreigners in the South um, didn't speak the language again and and t- twice over every time we moved but it was it was a full 10 years that we were there before we moved to I was I turned 16 in Moscow um, that was that move um, my father is a tea taster he's worked for tea companies his whole life um, sort of company man but weird job um, I mean that sounds like a dream job if you love tea <laughs> He does love tea. He's in love with tea, has loved tea. Wow, a tea taster. I'd never even heard of this as a as a job before. It sounds like a job that somebody who loves tea would be like, I want to be a tea taster one day. Like I want to be an ice cream taster. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. Um yes, that that has been the that has been the job. He's worked for tea companies his whole life, but sort of tasting and marketing tea and um mixing different blends for different demographics, uh, tea drinking demographics are very different, even inside of like the UK, people in the North drink their tea differently from the South and, you know, all over. Um, but he was, uh, he had a, he had a entry level, like cleaning the bathrooms job at Lipton when he was very young, I think 19. And they did a company-wide taste test and they discovered that he had the palate. Um, and so that is re- literally all he's done. That's a, that's amazing. That kind of sounds like a like a Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Except where does it go? What's the? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. It goes. Uh, <laughs> I guess the, it goes to Moscow. Apparently. Yeah, it did for a while because they love their tea. It's the same word. Chai. They say chai. Um, and of course, you know, samovars you know they they also love tea so Mm. so we've lived in tea drinking countries from russia we moved back to the uk to that after an 11 year period i moved back and did high school uh in england and then college and then i worked before i came to the us on a on a scholarship so so what do you remember of your time in russia so this must have been in the in the uh early 90s Gosh, when was it? It was late '90s, actually. So um, Russia has opened up. It's be, it's it's before it started to turn. Yes, it was Dunkin' Donuts. So exciting! <laughs> Not just for the Russians, for me, like for I feel like everyone. Um, I went to an international school that was the pits. It was like the worst teachers from the like te- people couldn't get hired in the UK. Were like got hired at this international school. My economics teacher would come in with like a black eye on Mondays, like they were getting into fight, like who knows, we were being taught a curriculum that was out of date 
in the UK, which I didn't even know until we moved to England and I went to a school and they were like, you're going to have to start again. Like I had to repeat a year, basically that year, that Russian year was a write-off um, education wise, but it was a phenomenal education in other ways. Cause that stupid international school had people, kids from all over the world. There was like 20, 24 of us from like 22 nationalities. You can imagine being 16, mm-hmm. all of us together, like all walks of life, all ethnicities and races. It was a shit show in the best way. Yeah. Um, things were kicking off in the Balkans. It, there was a lot of unrest. There were Serbs and Croats in my class with Russians. All of the tensions that you can imagine that were playing out on a much larger scale you know, would, would come up. Um, new money Russians you know with new money that was a thing that started to happen there was a very big mafia presence that was very public so as a teenager I was thrilled I had no sense of my mortality I was discovered vodka it was (laughs) I had a great 12 months and my parents I don't know how they I don't know how they survived it did your parents have uh friends or was it really, were they just like the two of them? It was just the two of them. Holding each other up. Like maniacs. Yeah. No plan, never any plan, just suitcases. <laughs> over and over again. And was, so was, was this, this 12 months in Moscow, uh, essentially, did they go there thinking this would be a temporary thing? And they were just like, let's just go to Moscow for a period of time and then we'll go somewhere else. Brian, this is a great question. I've never asked it. I don't know what there, I don't know that there was a greater plan. I assume they thought they would be able to come back to India. But what happened was the ruble crash that year. Yeah. My father wasn't, what emerged was he wasn't being paid by the company who hired him. And of course, he didn't tell us. So it was a very stressful year for him. And like, again, it was like, I remember feeling stressed and not knowing why. We didn't know this for years later. Um, but I think for him, he was like, oh, I can't move back. Now I can't move back to India with this having happened. Um, and then he met a, a man on a flight going somewhere who offered him, a, who happened to be a tea man, uh, a tea, an owner of a tea company who offered him a job in the UK. And that's how we got out of Russia. Wow. I then it's like <laughs> always talk to people on planes. <laughs> I see. I am like... Like my, I never put my hood over my head, but when I'm on a flight, the hood goes up. I put headphones in, even if it's not plugged into anything, I just need, like, I can't, I, and now, and I'm just like, you know what? I need to be like, I need to open up. I need to, I need to talk to people. Giving you terrible advice, especially in the age of COVID. (laughs) Right. I know. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess it does. I guess you'd follow your instinct a bit. I am that person that wipes everything down. I, Pre-COVID, I was like a seat wiper. Oh, oh yeah. 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 I'm I'm a weirdo on a plane. I mean, you might have been protected from a lot of conspiracy theorists. <laughs> so true. So true. Uh, so, uh, so then you go back to, you go back to the UK as a, as a teenager, you finish high school. Uh, yeah. I, you know, you're, you're at that age, you're, you're forming an adult brain, right? Mm -hmm. So you're seeing, you're seeing England 
through a, an older lens? Like, what was that experience like? Did you come in with the memories from childhood, like yeah. like bracing yourself for reentry? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, when I left, it was like He Man and Shira and My Little Pony and um, The Simpsons. I think actually early Simpsons. And when I came back, it was a completely different landscape. And there was this huge pre-internet just. So it wasn't like I was caught up. Like now I think you're kind of, everyone's kind of caught up on mm. what's happening culturally. We all share the Kardashians. Um, and <laughs> then it just wasn't true. I mean, I read newspapers, but it wasn't true. That So it was, it was an enormous, enormous shock. Again, it was like a succession of shocks because Russia was a shock. Um, and then England was a huge shock because, of course, I spoke the language and I, you know, read books in English for a very long time. Um, but that's not the same as living somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't know the cues and no cultural cues. And then I went to um, a public school that was a Catholic, all girls Catholic school, which is its own kind of hell um, that I wasn't prepared for. And um, yeah, so it was, it was a lot. And within a year and a half, it was college applications time. Mm. And so it was like a lot of figuring out and I didn't know what was what uh, at all and how to, how to go through that process. So there was a lot of, of catching up. Were you, did you have a religion of your own when you went to that Catholic school? Um, no, my parents have, were always Sikhs. So, I mean, we're born, we were born Hindu and, be, you know, raised mostly in India. I grew up in Hinduism, which is a big kind of cultural force, uh, was then. Now it is um, a horrifying right-wing uh, uh, situation since Prime Minister Modi has been, you know, the head of our head of the country now for a very long time. Um, it, it, India is no longer secular. I grew up in a secular country, and it was a proudly secular country, and um, that that has gone. But it, it was very much cultural, more than it was like um, a practice. And my parents were, you know, sought kind of. Uh, they had started practicing Buddhism um, just before we left India. And so they were kind of that kind of, um, they had followed the philosopher. I don't know if you know the philosopher, Jay Krishnamurti, mm -hmm. who was part of the Theosophical Society in India. And that was a fascinating story, how he came to be, uh, how he came to be a philosopher, but he had started two school several schools now there's one in in Ojai in California there's one in the UK and there's one where I grew up in in India and so I went to that school so it we were it wasn't um it was more like a a philosophical engine at home anyway the the questions of sort of what are we doing here yeah I found out the hard way about the uh the dominant political party in India because my initials are BJP <laughs> and that's BJP is kind of is kind of my nickname is the closest thing I have to a nickname right and uh years ago I tried to get the URL 
BJP. And I was like, who would have this? And so I like Googled what BJP was and I was like, oh man. <laughs> and just the, <laughs> just the other day, there was a, there was a, a hashtag that was trending on Twitter that said, shame on BJP. And then somebody tweeted it at me and, and said, I was worried this was going to be about you. <laughs> That it was that it was you'd been me too. That I had done something. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, what have I said? What have I done? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's how. That's actually uh, I I I spell out BJP phonetically as my. Uh, that's like my social media channels, okay. and it's because of the political party in India. Right. That's why. That's why I ended up uh, doing that. It's good to distinguish yourself. Hang on to that that hashtag. <laughs> Shame on BJP. Shame on the other BJP. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so through through all of this, yeah. So you're now at the point, like we 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 tracked you to the point where you're uh, you know, starting <laughs> to apply for colleges. Are yeah. you writing? Are you a writer during any of this? Like, has theater been introduced into your life? Yes, theater had been introduced very, very early. There are no writers in my, there are no artists in my family at all, except probably closet artists, all of them, but no one, no, my, my, my grandparents were refugees. My parents grew up pretty impoverished conditions in India. So it was, there was always an imperative to just sort of get to the middle class. And my dad's job was sort of that in that he, you know, worked for a company. And I think that that, that just meant that there were, I only learned recently that my grandfather had wanted to be a journalist. Um, I had no idea um, and, and couldn't afford it. So I think that um, there, there, ha there has been sort of probably, you know, my, my grandmother was a complete maniac. I think because she was an artist and couldn't express it. And I think she was, really kind of a talented storyteller and um which meant that she would just embellish everything she was a big fat liar um but i think it's because <laughs> she uh really she was really theatrical like everything was um everything became a moment and some often at the expense of other people's feelings but she would have been fine in the theater <laughs> mm. <laughs> long spell um yeah, so it, I had in England, it was my first, my first memory, some of my first memories are being in a play in the UK, I must have been four, three or four. And so um, there was that. And then in India, I would stage plays, I would like put plays, on. I didn't even know what they were, but I would write things and put children, other children in them and then charge people to come and see the plays on our balconies. So where all of this, like, really, because there was no theater in India, really, uh, where it all came from, I don't know. But those impulses, I think, were always there to um, boss people around and make them watch things <laughs> uh, that they may have no interest in. And um, then it kind of went away. But I always had this sense that I was collecting. I wasn't ever writing anything down. I, but I did have a sense of, um, it was sort of magpieing, kind of, Tonally, because tonally my life had changed so much so quickly that that was the thing that I was gripped by and that kind of possessed by and had no means of expression for. 
And then um, in England, in high school, there was a, we had a, I had a theater teacher, I did theater studies. And um, that was the moment when Beckett and Carol Churchill and Stanislavski kind of came into my life and Shakespeare and all of that in that one a year and a half of high, real high school, <laughs> of not shitty curriculum high school. And um, I just absorbed it all. And there was something in Tennessee Williams. And that really was a year and a half, probably all those people through, through theater studies and literature. And there was something about, I think Beckett in particular, that I was, I understood. I sort mm -hmm. of recognized it coming from somewhere where there was so much sadness and cruelty um, and unfairness and disparity like India made no no sense and then my experience made no sense again and I think the the pure absurdity of um, ex of living <laughs> uh, in a lands in a landscape and in a country where there is no order it is pure chaos to live there and you feel it every second I think I I got it there was something about that that I that I understood mm. and I sort of held on to it, but didn't, again, didn't write anything down, didn't think that I was in any way a writer, but continued in, in when I went to college, which I did in London, I continued to do it. Like I directed a play, the only time in my life I directed a play my first year and um, drawn to, I did, it was Gunter Grass, do you know, the, the, novelist Gunter Grass mm. who was, um, wrote The Tin Drum and um, you know was very much on the left of German politics and then right right before he died actually it came out that he was um, I think in the not if not in the SS he was definitely like Hitler Youth or like it was a really weird about turn that happened late in his life but it hadn't happened then when I was reading him and I thought what I could do because I didn't know what I was doing. I thought if I took a bad play, what I thought was a bad play, I could make it better. But if I took a good play, I couldn't make that better and people would know that I'd fucked up. Mm -hmm. I took this really absurd play by Gunter Grass and I direct directed it or whatever I thought directing was. Um, and, you know, I, I really, yeah, hung what, on. What, what, what were you pretending to care about <laughs> studying when you went to university in the first place? Like, what were you saying? I'm going to focus on this. It was literature. And in the UK, there's no um, liberal arts. So you do one thing for three years. Mm -hmm. So if you do literature, you start at the beginning with Old English and Anglo-Saxon, you know, and then through Chaucer, it was like a straight line through you get, and then you get end at Toni Morrison. That mm -hmm. was my education. And there was very little space for writers from other disciplines, post-colonial literature, none of that. Uh, it was very canonical, strictly canonical. And Shakespeare was Shake. Did they do they consider yeah. Shakespeare literature? Yes, lots of lots of that. Mm. Um, no real playwrights. Maybe a little bit of Sarah Kane. I wasn't aware of new plays being written, even though I was in London, it was culturally so far from where I had come. And like, I, and I was still, and I had to learn Anglo-Saxon. It was all like a lot, college was a lot. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm wondering, 
Can I psychoanalyze you for a second? Oh God, here goes. <laughs> I, I never do this, but I'm so interested in the why of the, like why was it plays? I'm wondering, so here's, here's my, uh, I'm, I have a philosophy degree, not a uh, psychology degree. So uh, uh, I'm not trained, but I'm just thinking about that. You, the, you talked about when you have your first time in England and you were like four years old and you were put in a play. I'm wondering if there was, if this was like one of the few positive experiences you had in a mm. tumultuous time in your, in your, you know, mm. early life. And mm. somehow that implanted in you as something to do that, that brings you joy or brings you something positive. Yeah. And it could have been that it was safety. That was a briefly a safe space. You're completely right. I've never thought about it that way. Can I come back? Can we do this again? <laughs> explain my life's choices to me <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> it is that's a great observation and i think that's probably true that um that story which i've told but i've never seen through this lens is that it was a production of chicken licking and i was cast as one of the animals and what i did was when it was my turn i said the whole play like i stole everybody's lines and I said more. And because they hadn't heard my voice, really, the teachers, I remember them, one of the kids being like, uh, uh, and the teacher was like, shh, let her talk. We haven't heard her speak. And I remember really liking that. I was like, yeah. But that sense of like stealing other people's lines and like doing the whole thing, there was something about that that felt pleasurable and correct. <laughs> maybe not so for the other children and being heard I guess in a way that felt safe yeah probably probably something that it felt like something I could return to and that I remembered yeah completely completely possible I like I'm, I'm kind of when I have when I talk to people about you know how did you connect with theater I'm kind of on the look or playwriting on the lookout because I'm so aware of how that happened to me, not as young as you were, but I was in, I was probably like 12. And um, you know how you chose to do the play that wasn't good because it might set you up for success better? Yeah. I chose to approach a, a, a project in class that way. Like, I didn't think I could do it successfully the way the teacher, um, told us to do it. So I asked if I could write poems mm. instead. And mm. I had never, I don't know where the impulse to write poems came from, but I wrote poems and mm. I got praised for it. Mm. And uh, that praise is what stayed with me, but I didn't start writing for like 20 years after that. Right. But it was like, that was the, that Mr. Hood's social studies class. That's where it actually started. If I, if I, go back because it was like a pot the it was literally the first time I had because I was a a problem child it was the first positive classroom experience I ever had yeah. and it set me on like a new trajectory when I was growing up it took a, it took a few years to to take hold but that was the starting point so if I may psychoanalyze you now <laughs> 
But there's also something telling in you taking that assignment and turning it into a different assignment, which I yeah. think is possibly maybe also felt good to be like, here's something else. Yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. do maybe, which is, you know, integral to artistry, not doing the assignment. Right. For sure. For sure. It was a, it was, a, it was, it was part anxiety, part rebelliousness, part in retrospect, um, an artist taking form, you know, for the first time. Yeah. Whatever that anarchic thing is that is in art was in you mm -hmm. enough to be like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. So let's go back to, let's go back to that that play that you directed, yes. what, ha what happened? Like, were you, what was the outcome? It was really successful. It was like, because, you know, it was like black box. We had two weeks of rehearsal and it was all of that great first year college energy. And I, it just, it, it was like a pure experiment that I knew I that the I knew I couldn't fail business and of course I was gonna you know I, I got a lot of help from all the people I made friends with that year there was like a you know somebody who knew about choreography and set design and like I got a lot of help from from um the stragglers that I befriended that first year and it was really joyful and what's weird is I never did it again <laughs> I just never directed again. I was like, I think in my head, I was like, oh, I get one shot probably at making anything ever. I just didn't think there was no way that I thought that I would sustain doing what I loved. It was completely beyond conception. And did you have, did you have anybody like, I don't know, feeding, do you have like t professors feeding this, you know, burgeoning? They don't care about you in England. Okay. Uh, and there's a, there's a really sort of almost anti-pastoral, like there's no care. Like you come in, they treat you like you're grownups. Like you go to class and then nobody knows where you are. You leave, you disappear into London. And so it was really, it was really, I was just flailing. It was really unobserved. Um, it, you come in once a week with an essay that you've written based on books you read mm -hmm. and you have a one-on-one -on -one with your tutor and they mark your essay, but that really was it. There was no, any theater or anything was sort of extracurricular. In, in the, the sort of like British university system, are you, are you thinking career? Like what is the end goal of going and getting this education? Indeed especially if one does English, what is the end goal? I did not know. I did not know. And I just knew it was something that I loved. And my mum had been a literature major in college. And I told myself I would never do that because she did it. And of course, then I did it because um, it was the only thing that made sense at the time. And so I, I really wasn't thinking, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I had a really kind of um, scary that year and a half after graduating was really scary. I did a bunch of odd jobs and, 
didn't know what what I was going to do. Did some publishing internships, um, did a little bit of literary reviewing uh, that came out of an internship. And um, uh, then I got a job in radio drama as uh, an, uh, an assistant, basically. And in England, radio drama is big. People listen to a lot of it. A mm-hmm. lot of it gets made and a lot of writers kind of a lot of playwrights come up through radio drama because it's so cheap to make and you know you get your commissions but I didn't I didn't really know any of that I just knew that you know that it might be something that I was interested in and it was a really really difficult horrible difficult time because the BBC is massively hierarchical and um just there was a lot of like talk of diversity but it was like very like I saw from the inside like what they thought that meant and I saw the way in which writers of color were being commissioned and the way the work was sort of uh, kind of there was a lot of tokenization and like um, things were underbaked the way that they were being made and it was a really difficult uncomfortable year for me um and really my first year, my first real job. Um, and I really, I think, really failed at it because I was sort of outspoken as a 22-year-old, 21, 22-year-old about what I thought was wrong. Um, not, <laughs> not a great move. Um, what was happening in your, in your life? Like, were you living at home? Is this, like, how yeah. were you, like, what were you doing on a, like, how were you living your life? Yeah, that BBC year, I was in a really tragic house in East London with two actors. Um, And I remember a friend coming over once and she said, this house is irredeemable. I remember that phrase. (laughs) I need to hear more. Oh, my God. Irredeemable. I remember being like, oh, is it like, you know, I don't know. I don't know where my consciousness was most of the time. Um, but that, that, that irredeemable house year was the year that I did, uh, I did the artist's way by Julia Cameron, that book, which I held on to as a lifeline. And I did it like word for word for three months. And it did actually sh- shift things for me. I think it did sort of, I'm i I'm a devotee. It did change my life. I, got into the young writers program at the royal court that so year. you knew like like you knew that you were a creative person yes i think that's why there was so much suffering because i had spent six months doing data entry in that job in a windowless room and i sort of knew as the months were going on that this would kill me like it would literally actually mm-hmm. kill me. yeah i get it and um I, I think that's when I started to take it seriously, a bit more seriously, this impulse that I, I, I had to do something else. <laughs> I had to tell the truth. I was really scared to tell the truth because I couldn't afford to really financially. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't afford to in any way. Um, so it, it took a long time. Were you aware that it was theater? I was, it was like a depth a dirty secret at that point yeah knew but didn't have any i didn't even know what it would sound like to own it yeah let alone stand behind it and when i did that young writers program i was the only person who didn't come out with a play 
out of the 20, 21 of us who did that program, I think everyone wrote a play except me. And I just thought I, I, I had a really hard experience doing that because I didn't, I didn't understand. I mean, the, the, the writer who was leading it told me that I had a resistance to story because what I was bringing in was not, didn't feel like story to him. And I just thought, okay, I, I don't think I can do this. Like, was it because you didn't have the theater experience? Like, did, were you not able to speak the, the theater language? Maybe, or maybe I was, I think I was bringing in like things that had very specific, were specific tonally. Mm. It, he didn't like or recognize, I don't know. Um, I mean, was it his narrow, was it a narrow focus on what is a play and what isn't that's yes. behind it? Yeah, I think there was a lot of that then, which I don't know that that course is led the same way now, but then it was, it was like, this is what a play is and how it's mm. built. And I just didn't understand what that was. It was not my experience that of life. And yeah. I could I couldn't do it. And I just felt like I'd failed. Like I, I left that course feeling like I couldn't do it. And, um, but everyone who had taken that class, like there were people who were writers who were just on welfare, like on the dole and that's how they were doing it. And in my sort of middle-class life, there was no way that that might, you know, anyone in my life would have been okay with that. And so when I started to write, you know, like so many ways, I was doing this full-time job and trying to, and by the end of the year, I was really sick. Mm -hmm. I was like, had my 22 year old, so I didn't, wasn't eating, didn't know how to live. Um, and um, it was, it was at that point that I had got news that I had, um, was a finalist for this fellowship that I had applied to in the States. And, um, that was the thing that kind of got me out of that uh, hellscape that I hit in East London, the irredeemable hellscape. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, br the bright lights of the USA. What were, were you able to find uh, writers that you read or were you going to see theater? Like, were you starting to experience theater more? And were you, were you reading plays that spoke to you in that time period? Yeah, well, I'd listened to a lot of plays because at Radio Drama, the one thing I did, I was listening to a lot. So that orally, that there was something that had been cooking in there. And I had, I did see a lot that year, but then again, I wasn't like thinking of myself really. And then less and less as time went as someone who could write it. I just didn't know. I knew I loved it. I just didn't know what that meant. Like, mm. know if it was acting, directing, writing. I, I, I did act, but I was never quite brave enough to audition, you know, mess up auditions. And so it was, it was really, it was very um, confusing. And then when I got this fellowship, I was like, I think it's dramaturgy. And I didn't really understand what dramaturgy was, but I thought that that way you could, would be an apprentice, you could apprentice yourself. And in the States, the MFA only exists in America. And it, you know, certainly in terms of the funding that one one could get funding to do something that you love was just like blew my mind that that was possible um and i didn't it was, know it was a it was a dramaturgy fellowship 
it wasn't I had applied to do dramaturgy and this was this was the like one of one of many miracles I think in my life I had applied to do dramaturgy and they had they accepted my application I got the fellowship and then they said uh we can't fund you to do this and I was like what like I'd gone through the whole pro all the interviews and they were like we're sorry we can't actually do it we're not allowed to in the within the parameters of the scholarship and but they were like we want to give it to you anyway like what we're going to do if you're up for it is give you this blank check to do whatever you want for nine months in the states at harvard university which i hadn't even applied to i had applied to uh the art which is a separate institution to do this dramaturgy thing that i didn't even know what it was um so and instead they were like we can't fund you to do that but we can fund you to do this and when that happened i thought i i mean first of all it was like uh, it was an incredible uh gift and opportunity and to do whatever i want so i could put my own my own kind of curriculum together and um i arrived in boston not knowing what was going to happen like I remember sitting with the gra graduate sort of course book, like going through it, being like, I could do anything. I could, I could do politics. I could do economics. I could school of architecture. Like I could take any class anywhere. And then I think very fast, two decisions happened. One was that I was never going to go home. I don't know what it was, but in three weeks, I think three or four weeks, I was like something shifted. And I just knew I was never going to go back to England. Mm. And the second thing was, I was like, I think it's theater. I think now is the moment. And so what I did was I put a, my own, I made up my own curriculum. I was like, what do I need to do to be able to write a play? I need to know about theater history. I need, maybe I could take a vocal production class, come from India. I'll do a post-colonial literature class. I like put it together myself and I took a playwriting class, um, which I had, I submitted the only pages I'd ever written, which was on a, on a floppy disk drive. <laughs> <laughs> In 2006, floppy disk drive. Uh, and that class was taught by Sam Marks, who was a student of Paula Vogel. And he accepted me on the, I don't know what merits of that floppy disk pages. And, um, that was the first time because I think Sam was was teaching Paula's pedagogy, which was very much uh, which was formalist and it was make it work for you. Which I hadn't been taught in England and I felt like I'd failed out of that experience of like well made play, but the here are the here are the options of how to put a play together now you do it completely changed my life I think within two months and I was like this is it this is it um but I, th I think the thing that enabled me to do that also was that I was like no one really knows that I'm in America if I fuck this up nobody has to know mm. like, and I also had this sensation that it would be the last time in my life that I would write privately I was like, if this works, then I'm never going to be able to have another piece of writing that is just for me. Mm. 
was another thought. So I just really, every second of that year, I remember just being on fire, just being so attentive to life and being so like uh, aware because the stakes were so high for me yeah. <laughs> having made those decisions. Um, I wrote my first play in Sam's class, thanks to his incredible teaching, just incredible. He was really encouraging and uh, took that first play that I wrote and said, you know, apply to graduate school and in America, you know, MFAs exist and people will pay you to do your thing. And I was like, I, I can't afford to be in debt. Uh, and he talked about Brown University and um, Julia and a few places that paid for you to do it. And so I sent my play to Brown and Juilliard and I think that was it probably and then I forgot about it because in my one in my one shot wonder world I was like I only get one shot at this it's done and I was like I'm going to concentrate on other things now and see what happens because I've made this commitment to myself that it's going to be it's going to be theater one way or another it's going to happen so I acted in something I directed uh, co-directed something that year again like that was it that's my direct that's the soul that's my soul directing experience I, lo I love I love this everything that's <laughs> happening to you in this moment and there there are a couple things that just that occurred to me one is if you got into the ART program you might have gone back to Moscow because of oh, the relationship yeah. with Moscow Art Theater that's at true. least the relationship they used to have I'm not sure I don't think it exists anymore yeah, um, yeah. But something you don't know is that just three or four miles down the road yeah. was a younger Brian James Polak My who God. was living in Davis Square, Somerville. What? In the midst of transitioning from being a uh, mediocre actor into starting to write plays just down the road, not just far from you. In that yeah. same time period? Oh yeah, I moved. Uh, I, I lived in I lived in Boston from 1998 to 2007 when I moved wow. to Los Angeles. Yeah, wow. and it was in this it was in this 2006 uh, 2007 time period where I started to started to write because the because from like 2000 until that like the first my first sort of eight years living in Boston, I was I was focused on acting. Wow. Yeah. So Actors Shakespeare Project, did you know them in Boston? Uh, I mean, I knew of them. Yes. Yeah. I was in a play directed by Jenny Israel, who was part of that company. But yeah, Boston felt, Somerville felt there were so many artists. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember uh, going to... I worked with an acting co I remember just being then there's just there was like a lot happening but also it was completely overwhelming uh because America and right. everything it was a lot that yeah year. yeah Boston wild right wild, that we were peers in I know <laughs> I know I know <laughs> I was figuring it out um I love that so much uh so so at some point I yeah. know you didn't go to Brown I did. Right. Actually. Oh, you I did. did go to Brown. Yes. So I. I thought you I went to Yale. I did also go to Yale. Okay. I, uh, 
I've cl- uh, I've done a lot of really good like top notch research. You can tell. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't leave with these facts. My uh, accidental Ivy League education, ex- extensive education. I um, applied to Brown, and I heard from Paula Vogel in February. I think February two thousand and seven, and I remember that phone call distinctly. She called me and she said, "I, I think you probably know why I'm calling." And I remember shakily saying, no. <laughs> and she said, I'd like to offer you a place uh, in the playwriting program. I have bad news for you. I think you're a playwright. And I remember hearing her voice and knowing that that was it. And I said, yes. And she said, don't you want to come to Providence and see it? And I said, no. <laughs> She said, do you want to know where you're going? Do you want to know anything about the program? And I said, no. And she said, you know, I really think it's not far on the train. You can get the train and I'll I'll show you around, which I did end up doing. But I remember being like, oh, no, this is abs- absolutely. There was something about her voice. that I was like, this is this feels correct. So it did go to Brown. And then within months, she said she was leaving the program and going to Yale. So my class migrated from Brown to Yale. We all um, applied to the program at Yale as Paula started and then went. And so we were able to continue our studies under Paula. So it was me and Meg Maroshnik and Christina Anderson um, that had this weird hybrid Brown-Yale education, Mm. accidental education. (laughs) I See, I had heard stories of the time period when Paula shifted from Brown to Yale and that she brought people with her. But I didn't know that uh, you had already started the program. I thought it was before you entered the program. It was like, pause, wait, let's go to New Haven instead of Providence. No, yeah, we'd been there for several months. And then she was she left kind of, I think, Christmas time that year, sort of December that year, 2007. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's that. Like, I don't, I don't, I just didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen anyway. But um, in a matter of months, I mean, she said the program at Yale is free for playwrights, which I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't apply to Yale because I didn't know it was free. Um, and so uh, that was obviously like a massive in- incentive to go. And, um, at that point, like I had, I, I knew that I was her student regardless. And uh, so we all, we all took that train down to New Haven <laughs> and stayed. Suitcases, lots of suitcases. <laughs> yeah, but with something you were quite used to, right? Very used to. And um, yeah, it's in my, in my DNA, this sort of four year itch really of like Mm -hmm. now is the time to disrupt everything you've ever known (laughs) right and your 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 introduction to the united states through the uh these new england these new england cities right yes yes these new england cities and um american philanthropy that underwrote all of that like i came on a fellowship that was a started by a republican newspaperman and um, I 
And then, you know, I was on a scholarship at Brown and then several at Yale that enabled me to do that along with work study. Like I came out not in debt, which I knew it was the only way that I was going to be able to do it. I knew I couldn't come out in debt. There was too much pressure. And um, what was going to happen was in the U.S., if you are here on an artist visa, you can only work in your field. So, and that, that's the condition of the visa. So um, there was some incredible, incredibly stressful years after that because I couldn't get a day job. Like I had to use my MFA, I had to teach, which I didn't mind, I love teaching, but it was, it was adjunct teaching. So I had to do like loads basically to make it, make it all work. Um, so I, yeah, there's, uh, Jose Rivera once said to me, when audiences get together, they talk about the art. And when artists get together, they talk about money. Mm-hmm. And I think that's complete, it's completely true. I think about how all the time, how so much of my, how so much of what happens in art is shaped by access, both uh, economically and in terms of your paperwork, where you were born, how, how you know, what, what your visa, what your passport says. Um, I, got British citizenship the year I applied for my fellowship to the US. And that fellowship is was only, you had to have a British passport to apply for that fellowship. So it just felt like I wouldn't be here if I didn't, if I hadn't got that British passport that year. Mm-hmm. So I, all of this seems like it's so arbitrary. <laughs> You know, um, and I and I think that it it would all have been impossible without without Paula working as hard as she did to make sure that those programs were funded, mm. and that her students didn't leave in debt. Can you talk about your writing from that from that first play you wrote, the sort of the I don't know, evolution or trajectory of your writing from that first play you wrote and. Sam's class to, you know, going through Brown and, and Yale, like, were you finding, were you like, I don't know, were you aware of like who you were as a writer? Were you, you know, identifying your own voice, that kind of thing? I think so. I think on the page, it was there. What, what I didn't understand was cultural context in a way and where American, um, actors and directors would meet that work and how and I think it's been a long process of learning where my voice meets this culture and this moment in time that I didn't have like I didn't have an audience in mind I was sort of writing like a poet a little bit like it was very internal I was following my instinct and um and using the you know Paula's teaching whatever made sense to me especially Paula's teaching and um, yeah. And, and so it, it, I had a point of view, I think, and I had things to say and, but they were, it was all experiment. I don't know what experimental is, but it was all um, uh, for, yeah, formally, formally they were all always doing something different and experimenting because I think my life has been so weird and patchworky the the work is sort of always reflective of that experience and i think the the process has been a long one of translating of translation and finding the collaborators that could translate 
um, that. Do you, do you still find yourself in that today? Very much, very much. Um, finding uh, artistic homes has been incredibly challenging for me and finding um, uh, kind of consistent collaborators has been has been really difficult and I and I and challenging and then when it happens you it, it's wonderful but I think yes it's definitely been a process and play to play it's been um, a process of collecting people I think over the years. I asked this I asked this one question often and um, I don't always get the answer I expect so I'm <laughs> going to ask it of you. Did yeah. you did you have an aha moment where you you and it might have been that play that first play that you wrote in Sam Mark's class that you talk about that sounds like a, a definitive moment for you but did you have a moment um, where you were like yes this is it I've made the right choice I can do this oh I I had that I want to do this in Sam Mark's class like I felt like in Sam's class that was the like spine tingling oh i i think this is it for me mm -hmm. i think this is it and it, it was that huge huge like the existential weight left from my life and i knew this was it i can do this i've never known i never i've ne i never knew and i still don't know like the act of faith that it is to get up every morning and try i think that's still sort of ongoing the like how to sustain i think that that feeling no, I've never had that sort of, oh, this is going to be all right. No, <laughs> but I knew that this was it. How do you, how do you, what's your relationship to success? Um, well, it looks wonderful, doesn't it? <laughs> People who have it, it looks so good. And I'm sure like a lot of it is because it gives you license to do what you want um, for, for a while anyway. Uh, I haven't had that experience. So I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think my focus has just been on making the work. How do, how do I continue? I think I, I've sort of don't really know what success would mean in relationship to me. I've, I've just wanted to be able to, and I would get most like sad and anxious and depressed if I thought I couldn't continue. Um, and there's so much vulnerability. I think, you know, being a playwright and just it is, it doesn't, pay, it doesn't pay. So it, it, you're constantly in a state of like watching your inbox because <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen and and um so yeah I, I i think it it looks great but i think what has happened in the meantime because i i haven't had it i think is that i've become very um confident in my process and in my voice and where it starts and ends and um writing is not always pleasurable or fun but it it is i've done it enough i mean paul always said the next play like what's the next play 
and I think I've been on I've been on a about a play a year for a long time um, and now I write in other forms and so that I've had a very consistent kind of practice and there's a there's like um there's a piece that has come from that so you're writing for television now right I have, yeah for five years now does this are you able to maintain a theatrical practice while writing for television yes and it's been really hard because i've you know it's been weekends and evenings and before the room and zooming zooming in or skyping into rehearsals and i i just did that for a long time and then last year was the first year that i didn't write a play while working for tv I couldn't do it. I wrote my first pilot instead. It's, I've been very late in trying to write a pilot. Um, so it, it's been hard, but I've done it. And um, I've just started writing a new play uh, recently. And um, yeah, it's just been, it's been backbreaking. <laughs> kind of keeping, keeping that going and learning a new form and I didn't talk to a lot of playwrights before I started writing TV. So I didn't realize really, because so many playwrights have made the transition. I didn't understand that it is a different career. It's a different thing. You might as, you know, it's like making a different, like it couldn't mm -hmm. be more different. And so a lot of my energy has gone to kind of completely like relearning a different, a for, different form and um there's been a lot of good and uh, and um there's been on the whole a lot of good that has come from that because as writers we don't get to see each other in process as playwrights and television is all about just sitting with other writers and watching them mm. figure it out and you know it's largely dramaturgical in that way because you might write a tiny piece of what is a much bigger thing so that that thing I think is so good and I wish as playwrights there was a way but we are we're sort of solitary and that's there's a lot of good that comes from that also but it it, it has been very nice to watch kind of like from grammar from small really tiny decisions to big dramaturgical decisions like how other writers kind of make those calls where do you want to go to from here um where do i want to go to well i greatly admire jen silverman who seems to be able to write in every single form and she has this she always says diversify your practice like um and i think it's a way it's a really smart way to keep from disappointment um because you can always then shift so there's, there's lots of other forms that I would like to write in that I think I haven't yet. I'd love to write a musical. I'd write, love to write a novel. I'd love to write poetry. Um, and I'm in love with theater. I have made a commitment to theater for better or worse. That, that, that decision that was made, I think, is irreversible um, and cemented by Paula, who I uh, blame now. <laughs> <laughs> for encouragement um so there's a part of me that want kind of wants to try it all and i think it, it it's it's smart 
it's a smart way to be and i don't know if it's possible or whether you have to you have to be jen silverman to do it i'm not sure you said really early on in our conversation you described your parents as seekers mm. and that's exactly what you are to me as i see you yeah yeah that's that's probably true um yeah that's that's probably true and i i can't blame them now that you've said that <laughs> your, your psychoanalysis has been so successful brian <laughs> i'm never leaving this couch <laughs> uh, the first yeah. one's the first one's free yeah i i think i think that that is a big draw about art making is to see something you haven't seen before to experience something you haven't experienced yet and i might not even know how to talk about that or but i know it exists and i i do think it's the thing it's the masochistic thing that keeps that brings me back to theater in particular which is so open to reinvention um, whether or not people want to do it is a different matter and the timeline of that is hopeless but in its raw form that is what it is it's the opportunity to begin the world again and um, I think it's sorely necessary in our culture and for myself for whatever peculiar reasons um, to know that it's possible Thank you, Dipika. One of her latest works, Yoga Play, has been produced by many theaters around the country, and maybe it has some more lined up. I don't really know. But keep your eyes open for it because it's a very good and very funny play. This episode of The Subtext was produced and edited by me. KJ Jarbo is the associate producer. Thank you to America Theater Magazine and Rob Weiner Kent. Oh, which reminds me, America Theater Magazine recently started distributing uh, a, a new podcast. Well, a podcast that's been around a while, but it's new to the magazine. It's called Theatrical Mustang. It's hosted by Woodzik, and each episode contains a fascinating conversation with theater artists from like all over the place. Theatrical Mustang, check it out. The music from this episode is from Lobo Loco. The theme song for the subtext is Hi by International Pen Pal. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. I appreciate you. The play filling me up this month is Even Flowers Bloom in Hell Sometimes by Frankie Gonzalez. This play has like a mind-blowing number of accolades, but it's just so good and it deserves all of them. <laughs>